and let us pray. God of the saints of every time and age, we are grateful, truly grateful for the privilege of being numbered among them as we share our gifts from you. Because of your generosity, O oh God, we have not lacked for anything we really need. Grant now that our words and our deeds and our gifts may follow this offering into loving service in your kingdom. Amen. And you may be seated. I know, I know, you were wondering whether you're here worshiping uh, in the sanctuary or at home, if I would still be spry enough to come up these stairs now that I'm a grandpa. But Catherine, I hopped right up, didn't I? Thank you. Yes, and what a joy. The sermon, which grows from these two scripture passages, but also prompted when I was thinking about the historical moments in the life of our church as we enter into its 135th year, the sermon is, what does our faith say about the end of life. The first passage is from the Gospel of John, and Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and they're about to go into Jerusalem, and the disciples already know that trouble awaits them there. They're worried. Actually, the disciples are scared. And to calm their anxieties, Jesus says these words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I've told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a room for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to the place that I am going. And then the Apostle Paul, in this one verse from his letter to the church in Corinth, writing about the hope of eternity. The question that he was answering, we're not really sure of but we assume it has something to do with what happens after our earthly lives come to an end. And Paul wrote, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This ends our readings from the Gospel of John and Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Well, the church is in its 135th year, or starting its 135th year, and I am entering into my 35th year as an ordained pastor the whole time in this congregation, which means in those three and a half decades, I have led literally hundreds of memorial services. And then I realized that it was five years ago this month that I led memorial services for my mother and for Clara's sister, Sarah. Now, what I've discovered over the years, and I think you can ask Catherine and Meredith and the retired clergy in our congregation, that every memorial service ends up prompting questions about the end of life. And there's this beautiful phrase that some of us use from the United Church of Christ service book that opens a memorial service that says it is at times such as these that we are conscious of the frailty of human existence on earth. And so it is the confluence of thinking of the literally hundreds of families with whom I have planned memorial services, and then the anniversary of two memorial services for beloved family members, from which this reflection has also grown, which is, what does our Christian faith say about the end of life? I know, I know. That's an awfully heavy topic for what we hope will be a hopeful new year. 
But it is a topic central to the Christian faith and a topic not without hope. And I have a number of clergy friends who acknowledge that some of their most profound spiritual moments have emerged when they were planning or leading memorial services. I've even discovered that memorial services can be spiritual moments for those who claim that they don't even know if they believe in God. Consider the self-described non-believer Pat, who told me after his grandfather's memorial service, Kirch, as much as I don't want to believe it, I can't help but think that someday my grandma is going to see my grandpa again. The end of a loved one's life, along with heartbreak, evokes all kinds of tender questions of faith. Sometimes the questions are, what does scripture say about eternal life? Or what does Jesus say? And in fact, Jesus has a fair amount to say about a version of eternal life, which he calls the kingdom. Sometimes the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven. But that word or that phrase is used by Jesus something like 50 times in the Gospels when he speaks of the kingdom of God. The kingdom, he says, in one place is almost here, but not yet. Or in a moment of humor and challenge, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But then gratefully, Jesus adds at the end, but with God, all things are possible. It's even been suggested by some that much of the sweep and the summation of Jesus' teachings about the end of life is this, that although there is hope about the end of life, Jesus said, just in the Gospel of John, in my Father's house there are many rooms, but a better summation of his teachings is that the real tragedy is not that our earthly lives eventually come to an end, but that we too often don't fully live while here on earth. In other words, it is a fair summation that there are fates worse than the end of our earthly lives, and that fate is to live life far from God, perhaps not knowing how loved we are. Now, friends here in the sanctuary, friends worshiping at home, before we go any further, it is time for a moment of, of caution. Please remember that when anyone, your preacher, any preacher, or the authors who flood the virtual bookshelves of Amazon, when they speak of things about heaven or the end of life, whoever speaks on such difficult and elusive topics is always dealing in conjecture. Which means too often we end up being like the preacher who reviewing his or her sermon comes to a weak point in it and writes in the margin and says, at this point, to cover up the weakness of your argument, begin pounding on the pulpit for effect. So remember, sometimes we speak with the greatest assurance of things we know little about. Still, we do hunger to know what happens when the earthly life comes to an end or people say, what happens to the soul? But this has been a human question forever. It's the immortality of the soul. It's certainly not in a concept original to scripture. Plato and the ancient Greeks believed and ruminated on the eternal nature of the soul. But scripture, scripture speaks not only of the soul, but of resurrection. And the resurrection reminds Christians that no matter how much we love Christmas, our faith is all about Easter. 
And just what does the Bible say about resurrection? Well, to be honest with you, most of what Scripture says comes from the Apostle Paul, who in one summation of it says that if Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. In a sense, he's saying if Easter didn't happen, then God's love isn't stronger than death. If Easter didn't happen, Paul suggests, then the end of our earthly lives will be a period. But if Easter did happen, then the end of life is not a full stop, but rather more like a comma, with more of the story to follow. Yet remember, we speak with assurance of things we don't fully understand, which perhaps is why Paul wrote that beautiful passage to the church in Corinth, no mind has imagined, no ear has heard, nor eye seen what God has prepared for those who love him. So ironically, one of the better descriptions of the end of life comes from a children's book Catherine read for our children and for us, those beautiful reimagined scriptural passages. But the end of life is described, and you may not remember this, but in one of the last chapters of Bambi, a book that does not shy away from the concept of death. In Bambi, there is a very short chapter in which only two characters appear, except for two, no characters appear except for two leaves on a tree. And this is the exchange that takes place. The first leaf asks, why must we fall? What happens when we fall? We sink down, responds the other, rather pragmatically. Well, what then, the first asks, do we feel anything? Do we know anything about ourselves? I don't know, responds the second. Some say one thing and others say something else. No one knows for sure what happens when we fall because no one has come back to tell us. Those lines from the children's book take us maybe as far as our imaginations can, with the exception of one important point. As Christians, we profess that one who did fall returned. That's Easter, right? Jesus returns. But what's amazing and sort of strange, quite honestly, is that Jesus does not return to tell the disciples what eternal life is like. For 40 days after the resurrection, there are these physical appearances of Jesus. He doesn't come back and say, I saw it, the streets are paved with gold, or I, have, I no longer have to imagine because I followed this bright light. It's nothing like that. Jesus has these exchanges that are really lovely and intimate, but they're mostly about eating together with the disciples. There is one scene where Jesus returns from and on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're on that rock-strewn beach. The disciples have a fire, and they're making breakfast. And in the King James Version, I've always loved the phrase because it's just so peculiar yet so lovely. Jesus returns. Doesn't say the streets are paved with gold or wait till you get there. He says to these people who are having breakfast in the King James Version, do ye have a piece of meat? He simply wants to break bread with them. He says nothing about life on the other side, but what he does witness is that God's love, God's grace is so remarkable that God can even make something hopeful out of something that most of us fear more than anything. And in that final scene, the chapter in Bambi, a strong, cold wind blows in, and the leaf breaks off from the tree, 
and spins down. Without Jesus, the cold wind has the final word. But because of Jesus, we trust that death is not the final word, not a period at the end of our lives, but a comma. But beyond that, beyond that, God only knows. Amen.